Hello, I'm Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where sometimes we veer off of the serial killer path to see what else lurks within the shadows of true crime stories. This podcast will be on Robert Durst, and if you haven't already heard of this story, this one will be a little strange. It has a lot of twists and turns, but I hope you enjoy it. Robert Allen Durst was born on April 12, 1943, in New York, New York. In 1943, the Pentagon, considered to be the world's largest office building, is finally completed. In the United States as well, it is announced that shoe rationing, canned food, meat, cheese, butter, and cooking oils will all go into effect. The United States and the United Kingdom met to discuss the future invasion of France during World War II. The U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower became the Supreme Allied Commander. The Quebec Conference was held during August. This was the first of two secretive meetings held between the leaders of the United Kingdom and United States and their military advisors held in Quebec, Canada. And during this meeting, codenamed Quadrant, Prime Minister Winston Churchill and President Franklin D. Roosevelt met in Quebec to discuss and coordinate plans for the invasions of France and Italy. In Italy, the Allied forces invaded the mainland in September. The Italian government surrendered quickly as they had already been negotiating terms of surrender since July when the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini was overthrown. Italy then declared war on Germany in the following month and agreed to help the Allies liberate the country from German occupation in return for leniency against themselves. German forces tried to liquidate the Jewish ghetto in Krakow. German Africa Corps and Italian troops in North Africa surrendered to Allied forces. Mussolini resigned in Italy, and the surrender of Italy was announced in September. In Budapest, more than 2,000 citizens were sent to concentration camps. The Allied leaders of Britain and the United States, and this time the Soviet Union, met for the first time in Iran. The British and Americans bombed Hamburg in July, causing a firestorm that killed 42,000 German civilians. So we see yet again that World War II was a big influence during this time when he was born. Now, Robert's parents were Seymour Durst and Bernice Herstein. Seymour Durst was born in 1913 in New York as well. His father, Joseph, was a Jewish immigrant to the United States from present-day Poland, and he was completely broke. Joseph was a skilled and talented tailor, though, and he quickly made a name for himself as a dress manufacturer. He then went on and began getting into real estate management and development, which we all know was incredibly profitable back then and still is. 
Joseph stayed very active within the New York Jewish community throughout his life. He founded the Durst Organization in 1927. Seymour, his son, was a small and slight man and had four other siblings. In 1935, Seymour graduated from the University of Southern California with a degree in accounting. To say that Robert's paternal side was extremely intelligent and hardworking is an understatement. Robert's mother, Bernice Herstein, was born in 1918 and was of Jewish descent from Germany. Sources all say that Seymour and Bernice married in 1940. Seymour was 27 and Bernice was 22. Now, guys, I find it extremely odd that I cannot seem to find any real detailed information about Bernice. And believe me, I dug around. Who was this woman? Considering she married into a wildly successful family, and even more that we'll get into soon enough, I am truly perplexed as to why we can find nothing out about her. All I could find was that she was a socialite, which for those that don't know is just a woman or a person well known in the rich circles of high society who attend parties and so on. That's it. The couple after Robert then had Douglas in 1944, and then Thomas, and then finally Wendy. The family lived in Scarsdale, New York, which is considered the richest town on the East Coast. The homes are large, immaculate, and expensive, and the schools are top shelf. It's also but a half-hour drive into New York City. And the family lived in a large and beautiful house. By all accounts, the family was well off, the children were very well taken care of, and Seymour helped run the family business with his father, Robert's grandfather. Then Seymour went on to build a half dozen office buildings on 3rd Avenue in New York City after World War II. Then for reasons that are completely unknown as far as I could find, one night Robert's mother, Bernice, stepped out of a window and onto the roof of their house directly above the driveway, and she was in her nightgown. Now, there is no really clear reason for this. The fact is that once she was out on the roof, the police and the fire department were called, and they had time to drive there and physically be at the scene while she was still standing on the sloped roof, I might add. Now, Robert was seven years old at the time, and he maintains that his father escorted him to the window where he could see his mother standing just outside of it and told him to wave goodbye to his mother and then escorted him back to bed. His brother Douglas states that that is completely false, that he is lying to garner more sympathy for himself. Douglas firmly states that the children were awakened and taken straight to a neighbor's house during the entire situation so that the emergency crew could focus on Bernice. Whatever happened, she then fell from the roof 
a volunteer firefighter actually reached out, you know, desperately grasping at her nightgown in an attempt to stop her. But she fell and she landed on the driveway below and she died. At first, the Durst family released a statement saying Bernice had been disoriented from asthma medication and that her falling had been an accident. But, very long story short, the consensus is that she committed suicide. And she was only 32 years old. No one disputes that this was devastating to the children, and especially young Robert. For the next couple of years, Robert and Douglas, the two oldest boys, fought and argued to the point that their father Seymour sent them both for counseling. Now keep in mind, this was the 1950s. In 1953, a psychiatrist suggested that there just might not be help for Robert due to, quote, personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia, unquote. It is said that Robert also ran away from school repeatedly. People that knew him during his childhood say that there was always this undercurrent of menace beneath Robert's charm. He seemed to be able to change his outward personality to fit whatever was needed in the moment. Quote, I was always amazed that he had friends because from what I saw, I didn't see how anyone would see him as someone they wanted to be friendly with. Obviously, he is someone able to assume various identities as it pleases him. Unquote. And that is a direct statement from his brother Douglas. His siblings report that they didn't really even enjoy playing with Robert growing up. Um, Douglas, the next oldest child, could fend him off. But it was another story when it came to the two younger children, Tommy and Wendy. He actually tormented them. When Robert was 15 and Douglas was 14... They had their last physical fight. As the story goes, Douglas had sent off for a wholesale flowers, plants, and grass seed kit with the intention of selling the individual packet. He's trying to learn economics. Robert took those packets, he opened them, and dumped them all into one box. Now being teenagers, tempers raged, and they fought. Now, Robert's classmates in high school described him as a loner, not without a few friends, but perfectly content alone. Most could, at the very least, pick up on something odd about him. But he did graduate from Scarsdale High School. And that was his childhood. While Robert's grandfather knew what it was like to have nothing, he took what he knew he had a talent for and quite literally built an empire from it. Seymour most certainly at least was aware of, you know, quote, leaner times in his childhood, but he watched his father Joseph work unreasonable hours and so forth and most likely developed a workaholic mentality from it as well. But Robert had never known poverty or real struggle. He was born into affluence. It seems quite clear that he was close with his mother. In all of my research, I did not come across any tales of neglect or abuse, no 
sadistic nanny, or beatings from the hands of an alcoholic father. I mean, nothing. But, regardless of the circumstances, his mother fell to her death when he was seven, and that left an immediate and lifelong wound in his mind that disturbed him greatly. And may I ask why she was on the roof, in her nightgown, after dark in the first place, if it wasn't suicide? What possible reason would she have had to go out there like that? If not suicide, then yes, perhaps it was due to medication, quote, fogginess, or a mental illness. But what other reason? So once we get into the deeper details, you might form a more concrete opinion. But I still can't let go of the fact that there is virtually no information about this woman. And I just find that odd, considering the Durst family drama. After his mother's death... He began to spiral downward, mentally. He was constantly fighting with his younger brother, to the point that they were both sent for counseling by their father. Now, if you go into Reddit, as I often do, or, I mean, I at least lurk there, you see all manner of theories about Robert's father. But if you take a step back, what father, who was, according to Robert, uninterested in his children and so on, tries to help his sons get along better by sending them for counseling, and especially in the 1950s when it was all still kind of in its younger phases. I truly feel like parents that don't actually care wouldn't bother themselves with this, not to mention their family name was becoming quite famous, at least within New York, and one would think that children being other than perfect would be scandalous and yet Seymour sought out help for his boys, and then again for Robert separately. That just doesn't come across as uncaring to me. Now, the doctor that saw Robert described him as, I said, quote, personality, decomposition, and possibly even schizophrenia, unquote. So let's drill into that. Personality decomposition isn't in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM. Now, I went ahead and looked in the DSM-5, and it really is just not there. But basically, it seems to describe the deterioration of the core traits of an individual, most often from stress or abuse. And certainly, his mother's death would have been beyond stressful for the young boy. And I also kind of question how a medical professional could dismiss him so easily as untreatable. But again, this was 1953 when psychiatrists were more analytically trained. So what would he most likely have been diagnosed with today? Well, I'm leaning more toward borderline personality disorder or maybe even schizotypal. Now, BPD can be decomposed into a borderline proneness element that kind of ebbs and flows from year to year. There can be variations in their symptoms where they still fit the diagnosis, but it changes in intensity. Schizotypal personality disorder captures a pervasive pattern of social and interpersonal deficits including reduced capacity for close relationships, cognitive or perceptual distortions, 
eccentricities of behavior which can become apparent in childhood. It is abnormal beliefs, modes of thinking, and perception. Now, it isn't my place to try to, without a PhD, to diagnose this man I've never met during his childhood that I didn't witness with my own eyes. This is just mm, sort of a couple of examples of what could have been going on. Now, the doctor did say that Robert might have been schizophrenic, so the schizotypal, again, might be a fit, but again, not my place to just slap a label on him. What we get from this is that the doctor definitely saw in him something that was very troubling. A ticking time bomb was a description I found. He was labeled a loner with at least a perceptible oddness that didn't go unnoticed by his peers. The last thing I want to address is the fact that it was brought up that he could turn on the charm whenever he wanted to and would change his surface personality to suit whatever the situation called for. An adolescent psychopath will often display a dishonest charm. Uh, be manipulative, callous, impulsive, they lie, they are somewhat unemotional, and so on. So, you know, it's something to think about. So let's get back into the story. Around 1960, Robert Durst went on to Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, where he majored in economics. He played varsity lacrosse while in college and was the business manager of the student newspaper, The Brown and White. Once he earned his bachelor's degree in economics, he moved clear across the country to get his doctorate from UCLA in California. While there, he was introduced to and became very close friends, the best of friends, with a woman named Susan Berman. Now... Susan's father was, quote, Davy the Jew Berman in the Las Vegas mob. Davy died under mysterious circumstances while on an operating table when Susan was just 12. Then her mother supposedly died from a, quote, air quotes, drug overdose a year later. So we can see why these two might have clicked right off the bat. While Robert did not finish his doctorate, Susan did get a Master's of Arts in Journalism. She was later paid by the actual Mafia, a whopping $4.3 million for her father's interests in casinos in Vegas, along with some other properties. So, kind of keep Susan's name in the back of your mind, okay? Okay. Robert dropped out of UCLA. He went back to New York in 1969. He joined the family business of real estate development and he worked under his father. Douglas, his brother, was also working there. Now, a young 19-year-old girl who had trained as a dental hygienist named Kathleen McCormick moved into one of the buildings owned by the Durst family on the east side of Manhattan. It was particularly Robert's job to oversee the goings-on in that particular building. When the two met, the attraction was immediate. This was early in 1971, and Robert was 28 years old, nine years her senior. 
Sure, people knew the name Durst, but the family kept quiet and most didn't know exactly just how wealthy they truly were. And Kathy was one of them. No one thinks that she realized just how rich he was. It didn't take long for the two to begin dating, but seemingly after the second date, Robert announced he was moving to Vermont to run a health food store and asked Kathy if she'd like to move in with him, and she agreed to. By all accounts, the couple were happy, but Seymour urged his son to come back to New York and work in the family business, and eventually they moved back to Manhattan. They were then married in April of 1973. Robert was 30 and Kathy was 21. And this was the early 70s. The couple often partied at Studio 54, which was a very well-known disco nightclub of excess and debauchery. They also took trips together around the world. Life was good for about three years. In 1974, Joseph Durst, Robert's grandfather, died and Seymour had taken over the business completely with Robert and Douglas at his side. Then in 1976, Kathy found out she was pregnant. She really wanted to keep the baby, but Robert did not want children at all and he forced her to go get an abortion. After that, the relationship began to suffer. Kathy then enrolled in nursing school in Connecticut, and the couple bought a cottage there. Once she finished nursing school, she immediately enrolled at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Her endgame was to be a pediatrician. By 1980, the couple were constantly fighting, And finally, Kathy visited a divorce lawyer. She then went about the business of collecting very damning evidence against her husband, as well as his family and the business. Robert was very possessive of Kathy, and when he sensed her becoming distant, he would cut off her credit cards so that she had no access to money, and she'd be forced to stay closer within his range. His anger at her evolved into violence, unfortunately. One instance is the couple attended a family gathering at Kathy's family, but Robert was getting impatient to leave. She made no attempt to excuse them so that they could leave, so Robert literally grabbed her by her hair and pulled her up from the couch, much to the shock and horror of her family. In 1982, Kathy was treated for bruises and injuries that she had gotten from Robert during one of their arguments. Medical records state this as well. And Kathy told her sister and a few other friends that if anything happened to her, to not let Bob get away with it. Bob being Robert. Then another friend met with Kathy at her and Robert's apartment, though they weren't currently living in it. Kathy asked that friend if she wanted to rent that apartment so that, you know, if things got too intense between herself and Robert, she'd have somewhere to go. And Robert had already been living with his mistress, the younger sister of Mia Farrow, might I add, for three years. 
and that was the last time anyone ever saw her. She was finishing up her fourth and final year of medical school at the time of her disappearance, just a few short months from graduation. It was known that she was leaving for South Salem, New York, after receiving a call from Robert. Now, Robert insists that he put her on a train in New York City, then had a drink with one of his neighbors and spoke to Kathy later that evening on the phone. He later told the police, quote, that's what I told the police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away, unquote. Oh, and by the way, it took him a week to report her missing. At first, he called Kathy's sister and asked if she had spoken to her. Her sister said no, but she actually kind of wanted to talk to him about her sister. But, you know, he dismissed her, cut her off. He abruptly ended the call. He then walked into a police station with his story. Now, anyone and everyone that knew her have stated that she would have never ran off or just disappeared. She was at the finish line of medical school, excited to graduate and work with children. It made absolutely no sense for her to disappear. So Robert offered a $100,000 reward for Kathy's return, but soon after he reduced it to just $15,000. Three weeks after Kathy's disappearance, the superintendent of their building found all of her possessions in the building's trash compactor. Mm-hmm. The apartment had been ransacked. Her friends went to the cottage she stayed at frequently and found that it, too, had been ransacked and her belongings in the trash. Robert's best friend, Susan Berman, became Robert's spokesperson. She's the one that dealt with the media as well as Robert's family on behalf of Robert. Now, Kathy's sister and another woman later poured over phone records that they obtained from the cottage, the apartments that the couple had, as well as the Durst organization that they got from detectives. They meticulously matched phone numbers to names until they finally discovered that Robert had indeed made a collect call to his family's business the night that she disappeared, and it was from New Jersey. So they believe that not only did Robert kill her, but that she is buried somewhere or she's tucked somewhere in that area of New Jersey. Now Robert Durst went on and talked openly of having no motivation to succeed in life, of not being, quote, an acceptable human being, unquote, of wasting away his days with weed, booze, and meth. So after that, as far as I can see, things were relatively quiet for Robert. He continued working as a real estate developer in his family's business. Now, being the eldest son, it was assumed that Robert would inherit the throne, as they say. His father was becoming concerned about the growing U.S. national debt. So in 1989, Seymour created and had installed the national debt clock on one of his properties in order to draw attention to the then only $2.7 trillion debt. 
Seymour's clock was dismantled in 2004 and a newer one was placed near 44th Street and 6th Avenue, if you're familiar with that area. Now, Douglas later said that Robert kept a sharp pointed plumber's wrench on his desk that was quite obviously a weapon. Another time, it was said that Robert had a gun in his office. Then, Robert went on to start urinating in people's trash cans in the office. So, of course, this is all being brought to the attention of Seymour, where he's realizing that there was just something not quite right about his son. The family all suspected that he had indeed killed his wife, and with that, along with this odd, paranoid, and disturbing behavior in the office, Seymour decided Douglas was to inherit the business. A team of lawyers had to revise dozens of legal documents that govern the family's trusts, which boy owned what percentage of the shares, and so on. You can imagine the amount of effort that would have to go into changing everything over to Douglas. When it was announced in 1992, Robert was livid. He nearly cut all ties with his family, though it was assured that Robert would still have plenty of money to live on. Then in 1995, Seymour Durst was dead. Douglas went on to influence the building of Four Times Square and won a bid to be able to invest $100 million in the One World Trade Center after the 9-11 attacks. So clearly Douglas had the appropriate head for business. Okay, now remember Susan Berman? Robert Durst's very best friend? She became a novelist. She wrote two memoirs, among other things, one of her writings caught the attention of Hollywood film producers. She also wrote for magazines like the San Francisco Examiner, Francis Ford Coppola's City Magazine, Cosmopolitan, and even Family Circle. Susan had been living in West Hollywood, then decided to move to her final house in Benedict Canyon. But not a lot is known about her personal life. She did have two children and had been married once, with Robert actually walking her down the aisle. But during this time, she was living by herself in Benedict Canyon. So, in late 2000, Susan was contacted by investigators because they wanted to question her about Kathy's death, and she called Robert and told him about it. It was, again, well known that Susan had sort of helped Robert with the press regarding Kathy's disappearance and possibly help in other ways. Did you know it was also known? That Susan had received two cash payments of $50,000 each just months before her own murder. Her last letter to Robert stated that she hoped that her financial entreaties would not ruin their friendship. Investigators were told that if there was anyone who knew something about Kathy's disappearance, it would definitely be Susan. Three weeks later, Susan was found murdered, a single gunshot to the back of her head. Whoever had done this 
she knew them well enough to open the door, leave it open for them, let the men turn around to walk into the house. That's where she had been shot. Now, the Beverly Hills police received a letter notifying them of a, quote, cadaver or dead body at Susan's address. The authorities also later came across an envelope in Susan's house that had the exact same handwriting and misspelling of the word Beverly for Beverly Hills. It was an envelope from Robert Durst. Now, with his friend Susan murdered, Robert Durst fled to Texas and rented a $300 a month rundown apartment in Galveston. He told the landlord he was renting it for his sister-in-law and he used the name Dorothy Siner, the name of his old high school girlfriend. When people would speak to him, he would pretend to be mute so as to not have to disguise his voice and yes, he wore a wig and a dress and pretended to be a woman. Now, while living in this apartment, he met and befriended a 71-year-old man by the name of Morris Black, who lived across the hall. The locals knew Morris as a perpetual grouch. Even so, the now 57-year-old Robert and Morris became good friends, and he stopped dressing like a woman. Now, here is what Robert testified to as to what happened the day Morris Black died. He said that he came home and he found Morris in his apartment, holding Robert's 22 caliber handgun and threatening him. Robert testified that they began to fight over possession of that gun, that they both fell to the ground and that the gun just accidentally shot Morris in the head, killing him, of course. But he didn't call the police. Robert stated that he didn't think anyone would believe him, that he was just trying to defend himself. What he did do was go out, buy a new bow saw, gathered Morris's axe and another saw, and hacked that man's body into pieces. He then stuffed the parts into bags. He dumped the bags into the ocean from a boat that night, only to return to the shore the next morning to find the bags floating onto the shore. So a teenage fisherman found the bag with the torso in it and called the police. That bag had been ripped open and it is believed that Robert opened it to retrieve the head to help keep the body from being identified. Durst testified, quote, I did not kill my best friend. I did dismember him, unquote. And you won't believe this, but he was acquitted. A psychiatrist diagnosed him with Asperger's syndrome, which, for those that don't know, is a developmental disorder that displays as significant difficulties in social interaction and nonverbal communication, along with restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interests. It is actually on the autism spectrum. Now, I personally do not agree with that diagnosis at all, but okay. Now, if Robert had just laid low after this, he might have been able to go on living his life as a quiet recluse. 
But two producers were putting together a docu-series for HBO called The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Against the advice of his lawyers, Robert agreed to be interviewed for this series. He was awkward and seemingly emotionless during the interviews. When they were done filming, Robert got up to use the restroom and had forgotten that his microphone on his shirt was still on and recording. In the bathroom, he can be heard saying to himself, quote, There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course, but you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. Unquote. Thankfully, this series led to a first-degree murder warrant signed by a Los Angeles judge to be served for the murder of Susan Berman. Robert was formally arrested in March of 2015 in New Orleans, where he was registered under the name Everett Ward, Everett spelled in the female way. He had been tracked because of two calls he had made to check his voicemails. In his room, they found a 38 revolver, loaded of course, and one spent shell casing. He had five ounces of marijuana with him, his birth certificate, his passport, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba, a skin-toned latex mask, a fake Texas ID, a brand new cell phone, and nearly $43,000 in cash. He has been in prison ever since, and a new trial has just begun as of a few days ago, as of this recording on February 18th, 2020, for the murder of Susan. So we'll have to keep our eye on how it goes. Durst will be 77 years old this April. It absolutely amazes me how he was able to live a life of leisure all of these years and is only now just facing justice in the twilight of his existence. His family believe absolutely that he killed those three people. Many of his acquaintances believe he did as well. I mean, do you think that there is any real possibility of him not killing his wife? his best friend Susan, and Morris? Thanks for listening.